with episode two of Swift Unwrapped. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. So I'm an iOS dev at uh, Instagram. Um, you also may know me from my open source work on, on GitHub or uh, as the curator of Swift Weekly Brief. And I run the Coco team over at Realm, responsible for the Objective-C and Swift frameworks. And on the side, I like working on Swift tooling, things like SwiftLint, Jazzy, SourceKitten. And really, this show is all about uh, talking about what's going on in Swift, the language. There are lots of podcasts out there on general iOS development, uh, but Jesse and I really wanted to focus on Swift, the language itself. Yeah, and this podcast is really a commentary on the Swift Weekly Brief newsletter. And in this podcast, we'll be diving deeper into the topics discussed in the Swift Weekly Brief newsletter uh, as kind of a commentary on what's happening uh, with all the various projects on Swift.org. And we plan to cover topics uh, for beginners as well as more advanced users. And uh, we hope you enjoy the show. Let's dive right in. Um, something that's been happening lately is uh, just a lot of interest and in work around SourceKit uh, in, in Apple, uh, specifically work to get it compiling by default um, on Linux. Now, just to give a bit of background, um, SourceKit is uh, part of the open source Swift release, uh, and it was released you know, just over a year ago at this point um, as part of Swift's initial open sourcing. And it's kind of Apple's answer or Apple's equivalent to uh, libclang for um, C-style languages, but for Swift. And it's really meant to provide uh, kind of external consumers, whether that's other tooling at Apple that's on top of the compiler or even people outside of Apple to provide that level of, of tooling that they can build things like ID-like functionality or other tools that will hook into um, some of the compiler functionality. Uh, we touched on this briefly last time. So some of the features that it enables are things like uh, code completion, um, syntax highlighting, uh, documentation generation. Uh, basically everything you need to build uh, the typical IDE features that you're familiar with. And you've probably seen SourceKit um, working and or breaking in Xcode. Uh, definitely when Swift was uh, first released, you probably remember all of the SourceKit terminated errors and all of your syntax highlighting in Xcode would go away. Um, this is uh, the framework that that powers all of that. Yeah, and and just touching on that, just because it, it probably hits a nerve with a lot of early adopters <laughs> <laughs> who are using uh, Xcode 6 in the early days. The pain know. is almost over. I mean, I haven't seen those crashes for a long time now. Well, yeah, absolutely. We touched on this briefly last time, but the Swift compiler team has been fixing bugs, especially in the last like, six months, a lot of crashers. Um, you even have the Swift crashers... Um, uh, or, or what is it? Uh, there's a Twitter account that uh, posts about fuzzing the Swift compiler all the time and, and posts um, uh, files PRs even with compiler crashers. And at, at this rate, the Swift compiler team has actually been fixing issues, fixing, fixing crashers faster than they're reported, uh, which yeah. is a great step. 
Yeah, I think uh, the name that comes to mind there is Slava. Um, there have been, I think, Doug Greger and Joe Groff have also um, tweeted about how many bugs like Slava is is squashing um, in the compiler. So hat tip to Slava. Absolutely. Forever. It's it's kind of scary to see uh, productive people like that. But anyway, th- all, all that going back to um, basically SourceKit, having been this kind of window into the immaturity of the Swift compiler, because really what you were seeing there was source kit crashing, but that was really just the interface. Uh, the real issues were the, uh, were the compiler bugs. And so it just so happens that users of Xcode typically saw source kit as kind of the source of, um, the, the view into those crashers. Uh, but it wasn't so much that source kit itself was terribly buggy, um, which is probably news to, to some people. It's really generally a relatively thin wrapper uh, around functionality that uh, typically lives in the compiler itself. Yeah, so redirect your anger. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're allowed to be angry. Just be angry at the right thing. Um, no, and, and really, it's, it's a great thing that SourceKit existed uh, because it allowed um, the Xcode team to kind of refactor how language integration worked with, within Xcode um, to... Instead of having those crashes from a very immature uh, compiler bring down the whole IDE whenever that crashed, uh, it allowed Xcode to do all of this language editing type features out of process, which helped it uh, just at least you know keep Xcode around even if the underlying functionality crashed, uh, which in the grand scheme of things was certainly a great move uh, compared to kind of having your IDE crash all the time. Okay, so going back to what's happening recently, um, there's been a lot of work uh, originally by Brian Kroom, who's now joined Apple and has since stopped contributing to to Swift for the most part, but more recently by Alex Alex Blewett on um, enabling more of uh, what SourceKit can do on Linux. Um, And up until recently, really for the last few months, for the last three or four months, SourceKit has been able to compile um, with the right invocations on Linux, uh, but it couldn't be done in a single pass of the compiler. Um, and that's mostly an artifact of, of how CMake works um, and also how the Swift projects are, are configured. So in a nutshell, the, the, the big issue there was that um, libdispatch, which is available by made available in OS distributions on Darwin platforms, so Mac OS, iOS, etc., is not available on Linux or was not until very recently until the Swift Core Libs uh, Lib Dispatch project came around, at which point um, it was basically a re-implementation of Lib Dispatch, much like uh, Swift Core Libs Foundation, Swift Core Libs XC Test, etc. And so Lib Dispatch is used in, in SourceKit to do a lot of the um, cross-thread uh, concurrency work that it does. Uh, what kind of work is it doing there? Is that for parsing and other like analysis on the AST or? Yeah, absolutely. It, um, it base almost all of um, SourceKit's commands. So mm-hmm. uh, requests things like um, you know get me code completion for uh, this cursor offset in a Swift file. Sure. All all of these requests or almost all of them have both a synchronous and an asynchronous uh, mode of operation. Got it. Um, and so 
when building an IDE, you typically want to use the asynchronous mode so that you're not blocking uh, the the thread on which you're you're doing this computation. Mm-hmm. So that your IDE stays like nice and fluid sure. and responsive, mm-hmm. uh, even when things like code completion can take uh, you know hundreds of milliseconds to complete. And so, SourceKit uses libdispatch for some of this concurrency, but SourceKit is built as part of the Swift project, as as far as CMake is is concerned. And so, it, it's kind of built at the same time. Swift itself, uh, the the Swift language not not the not the stuff built on top of it but the swift language itself doesn't use libdispatch directly or doesn't have to um and so the general flow for building uh swift libdispatch and source kit has generally been first you build uh swift and then you build libdispatch because it depends on swift to build its swift overlay uh this kind of concept that allows um non-swift APIs and libraries to expose a Swift-like API wrapper, um, which internally uh, among among the Swift tooling is called Swift overlays. And they they have these uh, for all of Apple's Objective-C frameworks, their overlays, their API notes, which is kind of a similar concept. I'm sure we'll cover it at some point in the show. Right. And th- this is basically what powers all of that bridging between Objective-C and Swift. That's right. It powers quite a bit of it, putting aside the, the Clang importer for now. Right. And so... Swift is built, and then libdispatch is built because it depends on Swift to build its overlay. But if you'll recall, SourceKit is part of the Swift project. So it can't depend on libdispatch, which is built later, because it depends on Swift. And so you kind of have this circular dependency uh, that, that can't be resolved, which isn't a problem when you build SourceKit on Darwin platforms because libdispatch is available on the OS. Right. Um, and so this has led to uh, basically a gridlock to prevent SourceKit from being able to build by default with like normal, uh, sane <laughs> CMake invocations on Linux. So basically, we've been stuck in this place where SourceKit does build on Linux, but it can't be done nicely. You, you kind of have to run it twice, where first you build w- without SourceKit on Linux, uh, and that causes libdispatch to be built, and then you build it again with SourceKit enabled. And right. all in all, and that I, takes a long time to build all of this, right? It doesn't actually, because um, using Ninja, which is um, uh, Swift's internal build tool, using uh, its usage of CMake, um, it can already leverage incremental compilation. Sure. So really, okay. you're you're mostly just building SourceKit, um, and mostly just building things once, more or less. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's actually not all that much trouble for an end user, someone who's working on Swift, building everything from source, to to go through this path. Mm-hmm. But it is a bit of an issue when it comes to uh, tooling automation. And if you look at the vast majority of uh, users of Swift on Linux, they're using the snapshots. They're using the um, kind of pre-compiled. Uh, versions of all the binaries that they need that Apple provides on the Swift.org site, mm-hmm. right? Or they're using a tool like Kyle Fuller's excellent Swift Env to uh, download those behind the scenes. Right, right. And so to have SourceKit built as part of this automation, um, really, you you can't really hack it in the way that uh, end users can build SourceKit today, which is, oh, well, just build things twice. Um, 
And so we've been in this gridlock because there's no nice way to solve this that doesn't incur a massive re-architecture of how things work, such as, oh, let's move all of SourceKit into a different repo or into a different project, or, oh, let's build libdispatch twice, once for the core functionality and then another later when we can use the Swift compiler to build the overlay. You mean software development isn't clean and perfect and <laughs> nice all the time? Unfortunately, not not as clean as as we're led to believe as consumers of this here. So really, because there's no nice, easy way to fix this, basically no one's been doing it. Um, and no matter the approach that we take, you, you basically have to um, pick two, uh, easy to implement, clean, or uh, sane. And so right. since no one likes making compromises, and generally the people who work on SourceKit at Apple have been mostly behind the scenes, not as involved with the community as like core uh, language members, we've kind of seen a lack of leadership and ownership there. Uh, and I say that with with total respect for uh, Argerios and uh, some of the other people who work on on SourceKit. Um, I think their, their priorities are just slightly different. Uh, they're more... At- atone to local teams uh, like supporting the Exco team than say uh, the the external community. Sure, which makes sense. I mean, it makes total sense. You know, Apple's Apple's a commercial company. They need to they need to cater to their own interests as well. Sure. All right. So, massive digressions here, but um, hopefully that sets a bit of of the background here. Thankfully, uh, Alex Blewett uh, submitted a pull request just about three weeks ago that introduces what I think is the nicest hack to build SourceKit by default in a single invocation of CMake um, so that uh, this can be done by default on Linux platform and therefore down the line included in the official distributions of Swift on Linux. And basically it boils down to calling um, make from within the existing make invocation. Basically it extracts out SourceKit uh, as a separate make invocation that when you're running the, the, the build runner, this, this build script in, in Apple's tooling, it will also in itself kind of span a sub make <laughs> to source. Code. Right. And he's been able to do this in about like 30 lines of, of, of code, uh, of, of diff. Yeah. The diff is pretty small. If you want to follow along, it's the Apple main Swift repo, uh, PR. Five nine zero three. That's right. Yeah, and it's it's very legible. It's very understandable, even uh, if you don't understand how how CMake works. Uh, but unfortunately, because of this um, kind of imperfect solution, because it is a hack, but really there's no other nice way to do it. Uh, this PR has kind of been stuck in deadlock once again, uh, basically since it was submitted. And so this really shines a light kind of on. Uh, pragmatic software development, um, the difference between a correct implementation and a practical implementation. Um, and I just think that this this whole process has been an interesting case study in uh, both how Swift is managed and how engineering projects can kind of get into this trap um, just as a whole as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see that, well, I'm sure developers listening can relate to these issues like you can't always uh, implement that clean solution because it would require refactoring the entire world and you can't go down that rabbit hole uh, 
you know, all the time. And so making these trade-offs is, uh, it's interesting to see that even the, the Swift team and it has to go through, you know, the, the same trouble that, that regular, you know, iOS developers and such have to go through. Absolutely. They're people too. Yeah. They're people too. <laughs> with, with hearts and, and feelings. Right. Um, and, you know, limited time in a day. Exactly. Yeah, so that's why I wanted to cover this. Uh, it's been an interesting case study, and uh, here we are, twenty-three days in, and um, you know we've yet to really get uh, a sense from the people at Apple whether or not this is even something that they're uh, willing to consider. So um, it'll be yeah. interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, it looks like the main like reviewer here is uh, Dave Grove from IBM. So again, it doesn't look like anyone from Apple has actually, uh, or no. Has someone from Apple? Yeah, so Argerios, um, who's listed as the co-donor in, uh, well, actually, this is an interesting tidbit. Do you want to explain what the co-donor's concept is? Uh, Yeah, so in the Swift repo, you can find a co-donor's file, which basically lists the different areas of the compiler. And actually, I think there's probably one of these for each project. Um, But you can find that file and see uh, who you know, quote, owns a specific part of the code base. And that's basically the person who is most familiar with that or who originally authored it, et cetera. Um, you may have uh, similar concepts on your own development teams, but as, as kind of a pointer, if you're submitting a pull request for an issue, you should check that code owner's uh, file. And that'll give you at least an idea, if not uh, an outright answer for you know who should review uh, your patch. That's right. So you you may have heard Jesse and myself mention names like Doug Greger and Joe Groff before. Well, Doug is listed as the co-owner for the AST, the abstract syntax tree, um, the basic part of the compiler, the parse part, the, the semantic analysis part. Um, these are, are terms that I hope we'll explore in more detail uh, in in the future. Um, if you're curious now, actually, uh, Jesse has a great talk from TriSwift, I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, on kind of the different components of the Swift open source projects and how they interrelate. Um, so Doug's responsible for that. Joe Groff's responsible for uh, SIL and SILGen, which stands for Swift Intermediate Language. Uh, and then, you know, going back to um, to what I was saying about about SourceKit, there's Argerios, who's listed as the code owner for the IDE SourceKit and Swift IDE test components. And so he's actually uh, provided some some feedback on the pull request. You know, hopefully that uh, that leads to a nice resolution. Yeah, and to to wrap up some of this, one thing to note is that getting SourceKit available by default on Linux um is really going to open up the doors for uh, third-party IDEs on Linux for Swift. Right now, you know, Xcode is uh, only available on Apple platforms. It doesn't look like there's any chance of of Xcode being available on non-Apple platforms. Even Uh, then, it's available on only 25% of Apple platforms. Right. right? <laughs> you've got you've got iOS, tvOS and watchOS that, you know, thankfully some of them don't have a version of Xcode. <laughs> right. So, uh in a way this is this is controversial from the perspective that if SourceKit builds by default on Linux and it makes development on SourceKit and IDEs for Linux even easier than 
you know, that could introduce competition with Xcode. You have this IDE on Linux, but maybe that could branch out to other platforms as well. I mean, what I'm thinking of here is Atom, GitHub's editor, and then Nuclide, which is Facebook's uh, kind of... Uh, plug-in ecosystem? Yeah, kind of plug-in ecosystem built on top of that. So yeah, exactly. So there, there has been progress uh, to use some of SourceKit's functionality to build IDE-like behavior into name your favorite editor here, whether that's Vim or Atom or uh, Sublime Text. Um, and so hopefully with uh, SourceKit being made available there uh, on Linux by default, it'll enable building things with Swift on Linux a lot easier because it'll mean that you have you know better uh, programming experience there. And there are tools like the recently released uh, Sorcery code gen tool, uh, which was released by Christoph Zaboki, which is a really interesting tool built on SourceKit, built on SourceKitten that uh, kind of provide a really nice code gen, almost like generate your, boi- your boilerplate jib uh, type of uh, functionality. Um, so yeah, tools like that, uh, tools like uh, SwiftLint and Jazzy, you know, if if SourceKit's available on Linux by default, it means that if you need to have any infrastructure that kind of runs these tools or, or, or tools like it, uh, you don't have to maintain Macs uh, in your infrastructure. You know, you can run this on AWS in a Linux instance or spin up a Docker image or Docker VM, things like that. So it really right. kind of opens up uh, the, the realm of possibilities, if you will, of, of things that you can do on Linux. Yeah, no more farms of Mac minis. And server racks. Uh, Jesse, do we have anything else to uh, discuss in this episode? Uh, do you want to talk about uh, method dispatch? Yeah, that, that'd be great. You want to give an overview of, uh, of what you want to talk about there? Sure. So this week, uh, Brian King uh, at Ray's Labs wrote this article about method dispatch in Swift. Um, it was a pretty in-depth uh, overview Basically, uh, so Chris Latner tweeted it out and uh, kind of praised the article. And this week, uh, so if you haven't read that, I recommend it. This week, uh, Brian King posted on the Swift mailing lists um, as a follow-up to this article that he wrote. He was asking on the mailing lists, um, well, basically proposing some potential changes to how message dispatch works with NS objects. Um or classes that inherit from NSObject in Swift. So there are a few things to consider here uh, when talking about method dispatch in Swift. Uh, Suppose you have a Swift class, and if that class has subclasses, then when you call a function on that class, uh, then Swift will have to dynamically dispatch that, at least in some cases, right? Is it this the superclass method or is it the subclass method uh, that it should call? And if things are marked final, um, then that means you can't override uh, a property or a function in a class, or you can mark an entire class as final, in which case you can't subclass it. And in these cases, uh, the compiler knows that you can't override or subclass these things, and it can do different optimizations, inline these things, um, or then you have um, a method table. What's yeah, there's the, there's a handful of ways that you can do it. You can have uh, you can have a v table. Um, uh, you can essentially have offsets that are stored in the binary that 
uh, that's that's a very quick jump to know exactly uh, which method or function to invoke. Um, there's there's message passing as well, which uses a slightly different uh, approach with obviously message send generally. Right, right. So so in this scenario, uh, basically the point is the compiler can jump right to that function and call it. It doesn't really have to figure anything out. Whereas if it can't reason about it, if there are subclasses or overrides, then there's some work involved to find out exactly which version of that function or property uh, to use. Uh, and then as JP mentioned just now, there's uh, obviously message send, which uh, in Objective-C, everything is dynamic. You're looking up the class and the selector, seeing if it responds to that selector, and then uh, sending that message uh, to the class. I mean, g- generally not actually, um, which is why you get uh, unrecognized selector sent to instance. Um, uh, if ever you've seen that exception, well, right. it's because uh, the Objective-C runtime doesn't actually check see if something responds to a selector. It will just right. gladly uh, do what you tell it to. Yes, sorry, misspoke there. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so uh, in Brian King's article, he kind of outlines all of these different combinations. So we just covered a few there, but it gets more complicated when a Swift class inherits from NSObject. So in that scenario, you could have like pure Objective-C behavior where you have this dynamic message passing, or the Swift compiler could uh, reason about that class to know, okay, this this class, even though it inherits from NSObject, it does not have any subclasses, and therefore we can treat it as final and do these optimizations. And so what Brian King is proposing or the issues he has here is that, well, now you have um, all this different behavior and it breaks some assumptions if you're inheriting from NSObject and it can break uh, KVO and KVC in certain situations. Yeah. Um, You know, in in a nutshell, it seems like uh, Brian King's basically asking for uh, what already exists as at NSManaged. And if you've ever used core data with Swift, uh, you've probably seen this keyword. It's generated automatically by by Xcode when you do core data code gen uh, for Swift models. And what at NSManaged basically does is tell the Swift compiler, I know I wrote this in Swift, but pretend that it's all Objective-C. Right. And so that's done essentially to achieve the goals that uh, Brian seems to be seeking out here, which is uh, give me purely Objective-C behavior so that I can uh, assume that this behaves exactly as if it was written in Objective-C, but with my nice Swift syntax. Um, But, uh, you know, there's a number of issues with that and you know, we'll we'll see how the review of this proposal goes, but so far it seems to to basically mirror this um, that Swift itself kind of has uh, a set of rules and a set of um, kind of invariants that if if you play by, you can kind of reason about what the language should and will do in certain cases. And um, you know, Brian's own article actually on, on raiselabs.com uh, does cover that with his table that describes um, what different attributes or uh, what different types, such as NSObject subclasses, classes, um, protocols, value types, how they behave in certain scenarios. Uh, if you make a special exception for NSObject there, 
you break actually quite a lot of nice things that uh, you can uh, some some features that uh, you you can have right now in Swift, such as um, types and methods that cannot be represented in the Objective C runtime um, in uh, in extensions or as properties or as functions. So, for example, say you want to extend UI Table View uh, with um, whatever your your favorite extension shortcut. Uh, you'd want to add. You can do that using generics, right? You can build things like generic subclasses of Objective-C, NS object inheriting superclasses. Uh, you can make them generic in a way that isn't representable in the Objective-C runtime, not as we know it anyway. Uh, internally, it kind of does that, but that's kind of an implementation detail. Uh, so you have all of these nice features on top of having this consistent model of basically not really tying things specifically to NS object, uh, but just saying that, well, classes with Objective-C behavior um, behave in a certain way. So time will tell how this proposal will, will be uh, will be received. But uh, my guess is that the Swift core team probably won't be too happy with this bifurcation of uh, the the semantics and behaviors uh, that are being proposed. Right, but this would also disable things like that, right? Like if inheriting from an NS object subclass, if that means you have pure Objective-C behavior and Objective-C runtime functionality, then you couldn't inherit from, say, UI table view and make a generic subclass of it, right? Problem. My guess is that it would need some some massive changes enable to to enable something like that because uh, yeah the w- the way it works right now is uh, is kind of a lot simpler under the hood which right. you know I- implementation details whether we like it or not tends to really influence the way that features are exposed and so I think this might be a case of uh, you know the implementation not really uh, allowing the kind of behavior that Brian's advocating for here easily. Um, but again, this is kind of the thing that's exposed right now via at NS managed anyway. Yeah. So at NS managed, um, you mean at obc, right? Or no. Um, so okay. at NS managed is, is a keyword. Um, right. Right. It's only available on Darwin. Uh, so, and, and what at NS managed does, um, is basically apply at obc to everything within the scope. Okay. Um, so it's, um, if I can put it bluntly, it's it's a hack sure. uh, that allowed core data to work in the very first version of Swift. Um, basically, my guess is that the core data team probably wasn't given tons of uh, of um, lead time to prepare. Probably, uh, and yeah. they were told, well, by WWC 2014, you must support Swift. And they said, okay, well, let's pretend it's Objective-C. Right, um, right. But yeah. my understanding was that at NS Managed was mostly for like uh, properties on class and core data where you're saying, okay, the storage for this is going to be provided by another mechanism. No. In, in this case, core data. Um, I mean, I suppose that uh, as, as far as an end user is concerned, that's what it looks like. I see. Um, but really it... Uh, it basically falls back on um, the Objective-C implementation. Right, okay. So really, the only thing you get that's a bit different is is really the syntax. Okay, but then you could have a Swift class marked as at obc and mark every member as at obc and still get that 
quote, pure objective C. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. But a shortcut, if you, if you just mark the entire class as in this managed, then yeah. So if memory serves, yeah, that, that does the same thing. Um, I haven't looked at that in a long time. Okay. Well, uh, we can look that up later to verify, but cool. Okay. Well, I think that's all we have, uh, for this episode. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at jesse underscore squires or jessesquires.com. Thanks for listening. You can find me at simjp on Twitter. Thanks for listening.